This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Deprecated Options. Program 437. Peggy Guggenheim. And the Sullivanians. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I'm Mrs. Claus. Ho, 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 and I'm Santa Claus, here to spill the cocoa beans on the kerfuffle here at the North Pole. Kerfuffle? What kerfuffle? Well, you see, my dear, the elves have been acting a bit hmm, strangely in the workshop. Oh, Santa, what's going on with our elves? Rumor has it a pesky imp has sneaked into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. Oh my goodness, a mischievous imp at the North Pole. Yes, indeed, and the tricky part is our elves can be quite the mischief makers themselves, so I'm having trouble telling who's the imp. And that's where Weird Little Elf comes in, right? Exactly. Weird Little Elf is a holiday card game for all ages. Players take turns being me, ho, 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 Santa, and ask the elves one simple question. And the rest play the elves who answer the question. But secretly, one of them is the imp, following a special rule like scratch your nose or cross your eyes that they have to do on the sly. Accuse the imp correctly three times and you win. Plus, it's an acute palm-sized box. Perfect for a stocking stuffer. You can get your holiday shopping done early and give a delightful surprise to your family, co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. And don't forget our gamer buddies. Ho, 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 they'll love it. We can get one for them and maybe sneak in a few rounds ourselves. So this Christmas, let's spread some cheer with Weird Little Elf, the ultimate holiday party game. Ho, ho, ho. The whir of the randomizer, the scratch of the cardboard standee, the crunch of the checks mix, and the malevolent gaze of Elton John welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where we are answering the question, what if you don't like stuff as a designer? Should it be in a game you're designing? When publishing a game, should you include options that you don't recommend? And I guess, Robin, there's an obvious answer to that, but that would take us one minute. And so I'm sure that you have the inobvious answer. So jump on it. Well, I'm not sure if it's obvious because I'm sure that you're unfamiliar with this concept, but it turns out that in game rules, Mm -hmm. different people like different things. Wild. And sometimes when you are playtesting, people will, they'll look at what you're doing and they go, well, what about doing why? And you, the designer, will go, well, I can see why your group would like to do why. I think overall, most groups would not like to do why, that they will have a worse experience. But there are certain groups that will have a better time doing why and want to be shown how to do it. So one argument is that you freeze out those people because you're trying to provide a clear message for what is the best version of this game for the greatest number of people? The other version is, you're going to try and do this anyway. <laughs> Let me give you a version that works, even though I don't recommend it. Right. And the further challenge, of course, is that when you do include an optional rule and also say, most groups, uh, I wouldn't say will enjoy this, I would recommend against it then the people who wanted Y in there actually don't want it as an optional rule. They want it to be a rule where uh, you're telling other people to do it too, or at the very least, and I've gotten this response in years past, you kind of hurt my feelings by putting in the optional rule I wanted, but then saying you didn't recommend it. Yeah, but- <laughs> so that's, that's the trade-off. Part of this is you can never fully satisfy everyone. And mm-hmm. uh, the playtest experience is when people feel most empowered to be critical and also to make requests of you. So that's the question before us. That's the trade-off between showing that this rule set is a set where you can do different options for different tastes versus, no, this is the way most people will play it and enjoy it. And if I include the other thing, I'm just confusing the message. Yeah, and I think that the simple answer 
is if it's an option that you genuinely think breaks the game or ruins it as played or creates a dysfunctional spiral of narrative or of play experience, then you should not include it, no matter how many people beg you for it. Right. If if they're asking for something totally broken, no. No, right. (laughs) No, no, let's not break the game. Yes, and and again, that is not a non-trivial segment of people who ask for things, either in playtests or on uh, game forums back when that was a thing, probably on discords. Even now there are people who are demanding why you can't use mage to play a detective game or something. Yes. And and we've, we've discussed this so much before that we have a t-shirt for it in our merch store <laughs> right. called this bicycle does not make toast, yeah. which is a surprisingly good seller as if other people have encountered this phenomenon before, or at least are um, uh, in their own bicycling lives familiar with. Yeah. So anyway, I think that that is, as I say, the obvious answer. And it is a non-trivial thing to recognize when a mechanic or a path or a setup does in fact corrode play. And it is your job as game designer to keep everyone away from that path, no matter how tempting and fun it looks like. By end of that, it is, as you suggest, by keeping the core version of play in your head brightly so that you always design toward that core idea. Right. And so for for a possible example of that, let's say that you're designing a game where everyone is supposed to be ultra competent mm-hmm. and you get a number of requests from playtesters. We really love fumble rules. Can there be <laughs> fumbles in this game? And that is one where it's like, no, nope, that breaks the game because that's yep. the whole point of this is everybody's ultra competent. They're, you're not running a clown show with these characters. They're never going to fumble. I'm you, you, not going to tell you how to fumble. Doing the fifth edition of a very much beloved game about immortal monsters who dominate the night and for some reason, one time in six, hit themselves in the head. So maybe take that part out. But the other thing is, I think that as it moves away from mechanical landmines and towards play choices and play styles... Not everyone in the audience for the game even is going to be you is going to have the same focus that this game is best. If it's Jason Bourne hunting vampires, they may say, what about James Bond hunting vampires? What about Smiley hunting vampires? I want to hunt vampires with all these things. And that is when I believe that it is your job to say how much play can happen at the table and still be recognizably my game or the game that I intend. And what can I do to welcome those people and move them toward the core aspects of gameplay that will fit with their vision? And that is very much a thing where I don't know that I would signpost an optional rule as saying, I don't recommend this, or even I don't recommend this for the majority of players. What I might say is, this is a good optional rule if your table enjoys PvP adversarial play. And then put it in and people will look at that and say, well, we do not enjoy that. We like the opposite of that. Good. Stay away from that rule. Right. And and the subtle way mm-hmm. to signpost that this rule is not for most players or mm-hmm. most GMs is to say the advantage of using this would be X and the disadvantage of using that is Y. And then you make it very clear and why why you don't want to do Y. Mm-hmm. But you also explain why someone would choose that option. And that's a a broader issue with optional rules is that often you will see a whole bunch of optional rules, but there won't necessarily be an explanation of why you would pick that option or not. And so I think it's important overall to make it evident to the GM why this is an option and under what circumstances you would want to take it. In general, optional rules tend to be, particularly with trad games, the extra complicated, extra fiddly rule that some people are demanding, possibly because they love detail or possibly because they want what they think of as realism. Or they just really love psionics and they want them in their fantasy dragon fighting game. Right. To name it the most famous optional rule ever. But the thing is that that most GMs who saw that, I think went, oh, well, this is another thing. I need to add this. Mm -hmm. And especially in first edition AD&D, when it wasn't remotely integrated with the system and was a big pain and didn't fit that really could have used a, you know, we just whipped this idea off the top of our heads and haven't really tested it that much. And uh, it'll make your game really weird only for advanced play. It could use being signposted out the wazoo and was not. And consequently most AD and D advanced Dungeons and Dragons games had psionics in them. But that said the coolest single monster that we made up ourselves, as opposed to stole from the ancient Greeks uses these rules. So make your choices. 
That's the other. Yeah. So it, it was signposted as optional and then wasn't if you want to use the, the grooviest monster, which is a, another issue for uh, optional rules is make sure that they're fully modular, that they mm-hmm. don't affect any other part of the game. And, and the more complicated the game is, the more likely it is that you'll want to not recommend an optional rule because you don't know how it interacts with all of the other complicated moving parts of your game. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I tried to sort of, you know, have my cake and eat it too when designing Trail of Cthulhu and Knights Black Agents is the sort of the notion of modes of play, which I lifted happily from Alan Varney's design for Paranoia, which is he recognized that lots of people play Paranoia wrong and you were never going to talk them out of it. And what you should do is buttress their wrong play as much as possible so they're not also ruining their fun by doing so. And that sort of brilliant realization that there's, you know, a right way, but a bunch of non-immediately disastrous wrong ways to play paranoia is, is what drove me to say, well, obviously, as a snotty Lovecraftian, a snooty Lovecraftian, we should only play Cthulhu games in a purist mode, not like I played them with howling delight for nine years. Not the way most people actually enjoy it. <laughs> and so there should be a purist mode, but then there should also be a mode for teenage Ken, who loved Tommy Guns versus Deep One's action and thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that is a, a big locus of Cthulhu tabletop play. So do it. And then as I did Nice Black Agents, it gave me the chance to sort of de novo think outside the box and say, what kind of spy story am I doing, even though in my heart, this is a Jason Bourne role-playing game, or maybe a, a Mission Impossible role-playing game? How do I turn this into other kinds of spy stories and make it work? And that design discipline that I engaged in, where I forced myself to think like someone who wanted to run, really wanted to run Cold City, but was using my game to run it, um, how how do I make their their play enjoyable. And that I think if you're thinking of it, not as well, I'd better build in a guardrail for dummies, but instead I'd better think of a way that I think is, you know, suboptimal, but is still, you know, full of really positive options. How do I make that both clear? And as you say, modular so that you don't wind up bolting a unusable system onto play as a sort of, sure, here you go, kid, step out on this rickety drawbridge if you like it so much. Right. And you never have more playtesters and therefore more different, varied, and possibly contradictory feature requests than when you're working on a new edition of something, because right. everyone who currently plays the current edition, or if there's more than one edition, any edition of the game has a request to make of you. Mm-hmm. And so as those come in, if you're doing something that is just sort of a refit, and the main second edition that I did, Feng Shui, I thought was going to be a refit, but turned out to be a ground-up overhaul. If you're doing something relatively uh, a subtle upgrade, as uh, Trail of Cthulhu Second is going to be, and you're, I assume, getting responses now, how are you sorting into piles the different requests as to what's a thing to fix for everybody, what's a thing to offer as an option? And I think the ones of no, I'm not going to do this at all, is the most self-explanatory pile. It's like, no, I think this is obviously stupid. You discard it. But how do you separate those other two categories? I mean, right now, as you say, this is a sort of a a very uh, modest refit in the sense of we're not changing very much at all. A lot of it is just sprues that have stuck off the system that have niggled at myself or Gar or Cat. And we're looking at some of the Discord stuff and some of the feedback and people saying, here's what I'd like to see. And really in this case, it's about designer vision. It's uh, if Gar or cat or I, if one of the three of us can't say, you know, that makes sense. Then it's like, well, apparently that is, you know, something for some other game and maybe we won't do it. And I think that of the three of us, I'm the most radical Gar is also radical, but he's, he and I are trying to fix things that may be inherent in the way gumshoe functions. And so are just a different experience and we can't undo that. And then cat is sort of coming in as the grown up and saying, these are things that need to happen in a game released, you know, in, in this year and this decade. And we need to look at those. And then some of those are overlapping with things that people are asking for. And some people are just, uh, mo- most of the comments are, are, either very minor or they're yay glad to see it or maybe suspicion that it won't be backwards compatible which 
it will be. So Right. And backwards compatibility is another issue to think of when you're adding options, because again, mm. you want to think not only, okay, well, in the abstract, this group, you know, some groups may prefer this different approach to, to this subsystem, but what if they take that approach and apply it to all of the scenarios that we think of as being backwards compatible? Is mm. that going to break them? Is it going to, are they going to need more information, another stat? That is something you would use to not only, you wouldn't put it in and say, maybe don't use it. You wouldn't put it in at all because, you know, it requires a number that you can't retroactively put in all of the other books. Right. Yeah. And, and we did a little of that actually during first edition when I came up with the magic rules that I liked after the game had been published and we published them in rough magics. And then I was just adding the magic entry to every monster in trail after that. So yeah, some of that is, is just the nature of the beast. And we have to hope that if you are doing that kind of, you know, major reintroduction of something that it is going to be so obviously worth it as to, make the modest amount of in your head GM conversion of a previous scenario, you know, worth the candle because the last thing we want is to do a version of trail that suddenly you can't play eternal lives with. But one of the advantages I think to gumshoe and to a lot of games in that specific arm of the trad tradition is, is that gameplay is in a different box than character design or character action. And so if we, for example, one of the things we were talking about is if we came up with a monster algorithm like there was in Ashen Stars and put it into Trail, it wouldn't really change how Eternal Lives runs at all because it's still the same monsters and you just look in the core, in the new core book and say, well, now ghouls have an algorithm and we use that. And, uh, it doesn't really affect, you know, players at the table or even really the GM because the GM is in theory using the new system. And if they weren't, then there's no problem. So. Right. A final reason to favor options and favor explaining why you might use them or why you might not is the message that most games convey to people, which is it's your game, change it how you want, tailor it for your group. But then you are balancing that against if certain groups tailor things in certain ways, they won't have as much fun and they'll blame the game. Mm -hmm. And so you, I think, want to demonstrate that games are customizable while at the same time protect yourselves from people customizing in them in a way that they think they want, but that they'll ultimately find disappointing. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the, um, uh, summation. Was that a summation? Perhaps it is. It is sort of the summation of what we've said. Well, in that case, Ken, what happens when we summate? Well, we summate, I suppose we're either we're done with that rule and we can, you know, put it into the core book or we're done with that segment and we can go see what fun ad awaits us. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, 
Sam Saltiel, and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. It's time once more to enter the history hut, but this time we have a not a futuristic but a retrofuturistic history hut with lots of knobs and dials and pinging noises and explosions and radiation. And that's all thanks to a beloved Patreon backer Fred Kish who asks, what was really going on? with program 437. And uh, that could be just about anything, but Ken, it turns out that was an anti-satellite weapons program. It was, by the United States Army and then the United States Air Force. And and I like the fact that it's a successor to a higher-numbered program, just right. to confuse the Soviets. Yes, the, the previous version of that anti-satellite weapons program was program 505, which used a Nike Zeus missile, an atomic missile based on Kwajalein Atoll, and Program 505 began in 1962. But the trouble is, the Zeus missile could only shoot 150 miles up, which means it hits relatively few satellites. And so the, they, they deployed it, but they immediately said, we need a better missile, we need a better anti-satellite weapon. And so they started using the Thor missile, which is more powerful. And as you say, they decremented the program name to indicate that, I suppose. But 437 uses the Thor missile. It's launched not from Kwajalein, but from Johnston Island to the south of Hawaii. It could intercept at 700 miles up, much better. And they began testing, basically, as they deployed Program 505, they began testing 437 in 1962. With right. the- and there's a Pantheon hop, it's which is from Zeus to Thor. Right, exactly. We're, we're sticking with Thunder Gods. But we're doing brawnier thunder gods now, I guess. And so the uh, the Thor missile begun testing for this role with the evocatively named Starfish Prime tests as part of Operation Dominic. Uh, Starfish Prime tests involved firing the Thor missile as up as it could go and detonating it and seeing what it did. And it turns out that the one megaton nuclear warhead on the Thor sets off an EMP that accidentally, one assumes, crippled a third of all satellites in low orbit, knocked seven of them completely offline, including the Telstar, the first uh, communications satellite, and it created a new belt of radioactive charged particles around the Earth contained by the magnetic field. So Right. And it makes no sense that the U.S. Army or government would just cavalierly shoot a thermonuclear bomb to see what would happen, which is why we're going to have to explain why it made sense, because otherwise it makes no sense, does it, Ken? It doesn't. No, that would assume that the government, having recognized that the program would not work, then set about to fund it, which they did. (laughs) Well, there's Um, nothing to make a broken program work than to feed it more money. Exactly. In 1964, they declare program 437 operational. And then I assume someone who said, maybe we don't want to keep irradiating the photosphere or the magnosphere said, what if we put a camera on the missile instead of a bomb and then it could photograph enemy satellites and wouldn't that be cooler? It's and the so same that thing people do with ducks, take pictures of them instead of right, instead, them they, instead of using a missile to kill a duck, they use a camera. And so the 437 AP for alternate payload began. It first launched in 1965. It carried a camera. To I, photo- I love how you just, it's a camera, but we've got to make it sound really macho. So it's, yeah, it's an alternate payload, alternate payload. And then there was a little uh, thing in the warhead or the payload, I guess, that would fall off and be and re-enter and be recovered. And that was the Corona spy satellite system that they just reused on the Thor. So rather than make a satellite, it just falls back to Earth immediately. Right. And it's already in the little envelope that you take to the Photoshop. Right. And they canceled that program within a year. In 1966, they said, even for us, this seems silly. In 1970, they moved program 437 to standby status because Vietnam was costing all their destroying the magnetosphere money. And so they now stored the missile components at Vandenberg Air Force Base. So if they, in case of war with the Soviets, it would take two weeks to a month 
to get the program components, fly them to Johnston Island, and then launch to knock out uh, Soviet satellites. The Soviets, of course, by now are busily putting out lots and lots of satellites to make it a more than one shot, one kill problem in the first place. Then, as if the biggest and brawniest of gods got wind of this nonsense, uh, in August 1972, Hurricane Celeste destroys the radars and launch facilities on Johnston Island, <laughs> which are fully repaired the next year. But in 1974, even the thickest of uh, Pentagon heads recognizes that this is a uh, weapon ill-suited to the mission, and they cease. Program 437 is canceled. They stop doing the mission on Johnston in 74, and they cancel the program in 75. And that's the end of so it. So does the Air Force still have an anti-satellite capability, or has it been... Uh, they do now, and the anti-satellite capability is twofold. You launch an X-ray laser, and it flies into orbit with a satellite and goes off. Or they are trying to build actual particle beams that can knock down satellites. And until then, there is the thing that I forget if it's um, Feynman, it's somebody who at the beginning of SDI said, well, this is great, but as long as you've got your satellite that can resist a bucket of nails in orbit, you're fine. And so I assume we have buckets of nails ready to go to orbit and unleash on enemy satellites. But, of course, the downside of being the most technologically advanced superpower is... We depend on satellites way more than even China does. So if we unleash anti-satellite warfare, we are basically making it uh, free for all on our own military satellites, which we pretty much need to do, uh, you know, missions farther away than a couple of hundred miles. And probably to fly any aircraft at this point. Right. Yeah. Fly aircraft, you know, even, you know, get the, uh, the, the ground units to meet at the same spot. GPS. Is, so is there an anti-anti-satellite system? <laughs> I'm sure that there is, but. At some level, that's launch interruption, and that goes back to good old SDI. And uh, right. they've got very, very powerful particle beams that are showing ever better ability to knock ballistic missiles earlier and earlier in their launch phase. But I don't think that we're quite at the beautiful Reagan slash von Neumann dream of complete SDI. Right. So to the making sense of this part, mm -hmm. Starfish Prime, the one that set off the EMP and caused all of that havoc and released all of the radiation and seems like a completely nutty thing to have done, was on July 9th, 1962. Two things of great note, particularly pertaining to the Dreamlands, happened at exactly the same time. First of all, Andy Warhol's soup cans went on gallery display for the first time ever at a gallery in Los Angeles. And also, the renegade surrealist George Bataille died on that day. He'd been in ill health for many years, and uh, that is uh, when he died. Those of you who've read Dream Hounds of Paris know that he's a potential uh, player character in that and is sort of the antagonist who eventually makes up with the leading surrealist, the Pope of Surrealism, as he was sometimes sarcastically called Andre Proton. And we know from reading Dreamhounds that Bataille arranged for Nicholas Flamel, the alchemist who we've talked about before on the show, who, as we also all know, is a ghoul in the Dreamlands. He's the one who prevented Breton from ever entering the Dreamlands. Later on, Bataille and uh, Breton uh, make up, but Breton still never gets into the Dreamlands. So we have someone who maintains a gateway to the dreamlands, or rather a, a barrier to the dreamlands, has died that day. And again, we know from Dreamhands that Bataille just, he doesn't die, he becomes cool. So, what does Warhol have to do with this? Well, we've also sort of uh, hinted, uh, like on the Paul Green website, that the reign of abstract expressionism, which is we've also discussed on the show, was supported by uh, the CIA, was all about trying to tamp down the power of the Dreamlands after it had been altered by the Surrealists. So, Ken, I think it's obvious that what we uh, know from here is that somehow that Starfish was either an attempt to stop the coming pop culture, Surrealism-infused resurgence of activity in the Dreamlands and presumably failed against the power of the soup cans, or uh, I suppose perhaps was meant to reset the dreamlands after abstract expressionism. Yeah, I think that that's one possibility. In my own The Cthulhu Wars, I suggest the perhaps more quotidian, uh, wildly, notion that uh, Cthulhu was rising on 1962, and they set off the Thor because that was the nuke that they had in the Pacific at the time. 
And the plan was to, you know, take him down. And that that, uh, that just, you know, happened to be when Cthulhu woke up and we had to sort of knock him back down again. Or we had to knock something back down again. And right. an awful, troublesome thing. And he had a whisker drink and he had a lager drink. Right. And then the other possibility, if you're just talking about the upper atmosphere stuff, is that obviously is a blow against some uh, other mythos creature your your maybe amigo armada or something else that could be disrupted by powerfully charged radiation at a certain injection point and that it was a launch against them this of course implies that the thing is done deliberately as a weapon i like the notion that it messes up the dreamlands but that it does it by accident that it's just one of the other things like knocking telstar out that they didn't think would happen, but they did. That it's not part of the plan. The plan was still the dumb army plan, but that the effect was something wildly mythos-adjacent. Right. And it's possible even that the causation goes the other way, that the cataclysm that somehow involves George Bataille sucks some ordinary dreams that somebody was having about Campbell's soup, and then they suddenly immunitize in the real world and uh, uh, make the beginning of uh, Andy Warhol's career. And on that note... We're finished talking about uh, surrealism and art and weirdness. No, we're not. We're going to do that on the other side of this commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect the satellite that is this podcast by working alongside such missile-resistant Patreon backers as... David Flisk. Robbie Carlton. Ruth Tillman. Nate Merritt. And Urs Blumentritt. The plates of canapes, the delicious white wine, the paintings on the wall, and the sound of chamber music filling the air welcome us into what looks like a Venetian palazzo at the Culture Hut, because beloved Patreon backer Shane Cubis asks, have you discussed Peggy Guggenheim on the show? I missed the Surrealism and Magic exhibit at her namesake gallery in Venice, but bought the accompanying book, and the first thing I learned was that she paid for Max Ernst and Andre Breton to escape Europe. I checked the Dreamhounds Index, and she's not listed, so it would be cool to hear the Cartas spin on her life. Yeah, and she is mentioned in passing in Dreamhounds, but uh, I guess didn't make the index. Not indexed. Right. And so she's a really fascinating character and one of extreme importance in uh, not just one, but two 20th century art movements and is someone who demonstrates the vital role that people who both buy paintings and keep artists fed and mm-hmm. also who create the infrastructure of dealerships and museums are to the uh, growth of art because the thing that you I need to know particularly about the Surrealists is that they were dirt poor throughout their period in Paris when they were uh, most creatively fertile so that uh, those who earned money uh, did so much later on. You're going to want to check out, first of all, her autobiography is quite good and well-written. It's called Confessions of an Art Addict. Since I last researched Peggy Guggenheim, a full biography came out in 2016 I haven't read it. It's uh, by Anton Gill, and it uses a kind of similar title. It's called Peggy Guggenheim, The Life of an Art Addict. I would also recommend the 2015 documentary by Lisa Imerdino Vreeland, which is called, sticking with the theme, 
Peggy Guggenheim art addict. And that is quite good and gives you an outsider's perspective on uh, her life and her later years after she wrote the uh, her autobiography. So, Ken, uh, you want to start the bio with a few little facts? Yeah. When I was doing the research, I want to say that I also looked at Mary Dearborn's Mistress of Modernism, The Life of Peggy Guggenheim. Congratulations to Mary Dearborn for coming up with a different alliteration. A different title that doesn't copy her autobiography title. And uh, there's a Yale University Press has another biography of her by Francine Prose called Peggy Guggenheim and the Shock of the Modern, which I think a little try hard there, Yale. Do better next time. But they were both pretty solid bios, and I needed them for things that we'll find out at the very tail end of this. But anyway, uh, Marguerite Peggy to her friends, Guggenheim, born 1898. She's the daughter of Benjamin Guggenheim, who was, I think, a third generation by this time mining uh, business mogul. He was big into copper. Copper, silver, and gold, all of yeah. your all of your metals. But also he got into refining, which is where you make the real money, and that's mostly copper. But Benjamin Guggenheim goes down on the Titanic in 1912, famously. His brother Solomon Guggenheim is her uncle. He's the guy whose collection becomes the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, and uh, he we touch on in context of his theosophist art acquisition advisor, Hilla von Ribe, and we mentioned that in episode 552, if you're looking to go back where we talk about the occult in the 40s and 50s. So there is not no occult around her, but there's not a lot. And she inherits in 1919, comes of age, and inherits a mere 2.5 million because her dad dies young before he's able to amass his own personal fortune. Now that's about- Solomon has a lot more money than than Benjamin. Yeah, because he's the brother. But that's 2.5-1919, and she's going to use them to buy- Art from artists who have no money. Right. And it's uh, about 45 million in our money if, if you're trying to parse it out. So it's still, it's a, it's a good chunk of change, but it's not Guggenheim money the way that we would think of it. But she moves to Paris in 1920, hangs out with Man Ray and Brancusi and Duchamp, becomes friends with all of them, marries a Dada sculptor named Lawrence Vale. In 1922, this does not slow her down appreciably. In her own words, she slept with a thousand men while she was in Europe. And she she has a famous quip. Someone once asked her how many husbands she'd had. And she replied, you mean my own or other people's? Yeah. Uh, so, So, yes, Peggy Guggenheim liked art. She liked men, and she liked men who made art. Yes. Uh, she actually uh, sort of chased after Eve Tongi at one point, trying to claim that scalp. Yeah. He, he was an elusive character, but she certainly chased him. Yeah. And then uh, she also, however, in addition to the plastic arts, sponsored the noble literary arts. Uh, she sponsored, among others, the feminist novelist Juna Barnes and anarchist Emma Goldman. And she basically kept Emma Goldman in a little house in the French Riviera and said, now write your memoirs of how great anarchism is. And Emma said, well, maybe not the most ideal circumstance, but I'll do what I can and bangs out a lovely memoir. So after this sort of experience, she opens a modern art gallery in London, modern art, of course, at that time being mostly the surrealists uh, in 1938 and begins. Right. And London was not ready for the surrealists. This, no, this is not the target market. No, nowhere really was ready for the surrealists, but they certainly weren't. The art gallery closes in a year, losing money the whole time. And she says, well, I'm rich, but I'm not stupid rich. And so she says, now I'm just going to collect art and open a museum, and that'll be the, the the paying concern. So she set herself to a program of buying one picture a day from September 1939 to April 1940. And people will be saying, goodness, something is very familiar about those dates. And indeed right. it is. And, and her plan at this point is to have her gallery in Paris, where people know the surrealists, and mm-hmm. there's a bigger shot at people coming to the gallery. Right. She has a torrid affair with Samuel Beckett during this process. Again, she loves the literary arts as well and becomes buddies with Gala Dolly. Yes. And and Gala has a whole different approach to men and art, Mm -hmm. uh, which is you find the one artist, you stick with him, you promote his career. And so she tells Peggy, what are you doing flitting from person to person? You've got to find your one artist slash meal ticket, which of course is what Gala had done with Dali, but Peggy continued to be Peggy. Yeah. (laughs) But that said, she did pick one artist and it was Max Ernst. And she thought he was great, became boyf girlf with Max Ernst. Right. And And in in the meantime, someone else has arrived in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Nazis. And so they've, uh, they fled, she flees to the South of France 
Mm-hmm. And Ernst, who of course is German, there's nowhere for him to go. Uh, he winds up interned in a camp in Lisbon. And it's not until he's there in the camp and she's trying to get him out that he finally becomes her lover, abandoning his then girlfriend, uh, Leonora Carrington, another surrealist painter and later author. And he feels really cut up about that. But Peggy is able to use his dire circumstances to uh, sweep her away from uh, Leonora, whose parents don't want her anywhere near Max. Right. So it's uh, it's quite a story. And as she's getting her pictures out of France, she's also getting as many of her artists as she can out of France. She gets Max Ernst out. She gets the Chilean artist Roberto Mata out, Andre Breton and his family, the Chagalls. Andre Masson, Jacques Lipschitz, lots of them. And then also she she's buddies. a lot of, of ship fares. Yeah. She's also buddies with uh, Varian Fry, the American consul in uh, Marseille, who is doing everything that he can to get people out of occupied France. And she is, you know, certainly providing the odd spot of uh, slush fund that he will need to bribe Nazi officials. So finally, she leaves France in 1941 when it begins to look like even Americans don't get to stay in France. And then manages to get Max Ernst out of some immigration trouble, it looks like. Right. So once Ernst was in the U.S., he was not out of the woods because, as previously mentioned, he's German. He's German. And so immediately authorities latch onto this weird German artist guy with the shock of white hair and go, obviously, he's a spy. And so the immigration service sets up a sting operation in order to entrap him. And that likely would have resulted in his internment in America if it weren't for the fact that his girlfriend is Peggy Guggenheim, who can show up and say, do you know who my uncle is? And they go, oh, okay, you can have him. And she gets him and, and Mata again. Uh, so now she's rescued them from two sets of authorities and two opposing threats of internment. Right. So anyway, she uh, after all of this, she marries Max Ernst in 41. Uh, she opens the Art of This Century Gallery, which is mostly a museum in New York City in 1942. And this is her big contribution to art culture and ongoing art culture, because this is the gallery that establishes the template for selling modern art. Mm-hmm. So when you imagine a high-end modern art gallery with the white walls and the very few paintings on them and the whole uh, vibe. That was the design that she commissioned for her gallery, which had a number of different permutations. Originally, when she was selling Surrealists, they had this weird setup with uh, you would slide out the art to look at it. And there was only one room that was a commercial room. But when it went to the abstract expressionists, that set up the template that exists to this very day to sell modern art to rich people. Yeah. And among the uh, abstract expressionists that she basically creates the market for and uh, midwives are Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and Robert Motherwell and lots and lots of other ones. Uh, She goes so far as basically to pay Pollock a stipend so that he can concentrate fully on his art. She encourages him uh, in, I suppose, every way possible. And she also is doing other shows. She put up a a show called 31 Women, which was 31 female artists. So she was, you know, far avant la lettre in terms of that. One of the female artists she exhibited there was the Chicago surrealist Dorothea Tanning, who ran off with Max Ernst in 1946. And Peggy's response was, one assumes different in private, but in public, it was a shrug and say, I suppose it should have been 30 women. <laughs> well, also, she she had taken Ernst away from another woman. So, yep. so uh, she was swings and roundabouts. And yeah. that always makes everyone feel better when they are biter bit. No, hold on. It never does. But anyway, after the war, she goes back to Europe where she has felt truly at home. And decides, in this case, not to settle in Paris, but in Venice. And she settles in Venice, and she buys an old palazzo, the Palazzo of the Lions, and opens the Peggy Guggenheim collection in Venice in 1949, and fairly shortly opens it to the public, that people can come and walk around her house and yeah, look at her it's art It's her collection. gallery in Paris, except it's in Venice. Right. And it's um, uh, in, in, in this big palazzo, and it's the first ever sort of exhibition of modern art really in Italy at all. She looks around for Italian modern artists and begins to sponsor them. She's not, you know, resting on her double laurel of surrealism and abstract expressionism. She's continuing to uh, sponsor and drive art in Europe. In 1976, she deeds the Peggy Guggenheim collection and the villa to the Solomon Guggenheim Foundation. 
and then dies in 1979. And this Peggy Gunan collection is still one of the premier art museums in Venice. And if you can do that as an American, you have accomplished something, I think. Right. If you see the documentary, her later years are just a little bit sad because old age is not kind to party people. No. And if you're used to being the center of the social world and and used to, you know, being with all these exciting uh, young people, well, your contemporaries, they've died already or they're sleeping on the couch and then uh, new generations, uh, they look at you and they see an old lady. So she was a little lonely at the end, but I hope she realizes the impact she had on art in the 20th century uh, as she was uh, puttering around her uh, Venetian uh, manner because it was a huge impact. Most people don't shepherd one major art movement into popularity, and she did too. Yeah, and so the uh, Cardass take also requires looking for occultism, and much to her credit, not really part of her worldview. She did, in fact, sponsor Roberto Mata, who believed in interplanetary communication and ESP. And she met Kurt Seligman, the occult painter and artist and scholar, and set him up. Right. And, of course, many of the other surrealists were playing at occultism without believing in its supernatural powers, while at the same time thinking that their art would provoke an international psychic wave of uh, utopian energy. Yeah. The, The fraught question of belief is... Maybe a different segment in a different episode, but certainly many of the artists she she sponsored had occult tendencies. Pollock, of course, his big famous first painting is called Alchemy for a reason, but she herself pretty clear headed and she had a, a super annoying from reading about her hanger on named Emily Coleman. And when her lover, John Farrar Holmes died and she was very sad uh, as you are and go going around the house and saying, oh, I can feel his presence here in the house. And Emily Coleman said, we should channel him. And Peggy Guggenheim, one assumes sort of let a lifetime of, or years anyway, of being annoyed with Emily Coleman out and shut that plan down with a vengeance. Yes. She was a a no nonsense and business minded New Yorker who brought business sense to the, the question of making art famous. Right. And was not about to get distracted by a bunch of, of nonsense, regardless of whether or not she was also showing Ilma off Klimt or any of the other super arty, but super occult guys and ladies. Right. So if you play Dreamhounds of Paris, she will be flitting around the scene and you uh, will uh, meet her uh, either hanging around with uh, a gala or making eyes at Max or uh, Yves Tanguy or many other different people. And uh, if you need a no-nonsense American possibly with some money to fund your operations in the dreamlands. She would be the one just don't tell her it's in the dreamland. Right. Yeah. Just, you have to sort of say, this is important for art. And then on the DL say, and the dreamlands. And she's still around in the sixties. So she could theoretically come up and follow Delta green, but as specified, she, the information she has, she doesn't believe she doesn't think it's has any sort of occult resonance, but uh, you, the agents of Delta green would know differently, but she could certainly be putting on a show in her Venetian palazzo that is uh, of occult significance. It could be art inspired by Carcosa. It could be straight up dream art from Dreamhounds, And she doesn't believe it's a cult. But she's, you know, a perfect hostess and all these uh, cult weirdos that come to look at it. Well, at least they're young and fun. And that's what she likes. And so your Delta Green agents have to sort of infiltrate that while probably being neither young nor fun. And that's the fun of that is you can't do anything that would destroy this villa because the lady will definitely bring the force of the whole federal government down on you. So it'll be a great example of sort of a, a fun undercover type operation, social mixing as opposed to, you know, explosives mixing type setup. Right. And in an episode that seems to be threading together, uh, we're not done talking about Jackson Pollock, and we'll talk about him a bit in a somewhat disturbing edition of The Elliptony Hut. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Ugh! 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathotep. Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time again to enter the Elliptony Hut, as I mentioned uh, prior to the commercial. This time around, we're looking at the Elliptony Hut in sort of a its category of crackpotism. There's nothing overtly paranormal about this because we're talking about a cult. And because we're talking about a recent cult with a lot of actual real victims of cult abuse, which of course includes elements of sex abuse and extensive ones at that, uh, we're not going to start with the usual sort of jocular introduction. But I think this is worth talking about this story to talk about what cults really are in the real world and to exercise some cult awareness. And so, at the behest of esteemed backer Ben Brigoff, can we've been asked to talk about the Sullivanians, who are a non-supernatural cult. They don't have any overtly weird beliefs, but they have the complete structure of an, an abusive cult control organization. And instead of being off in a compound somewhere or out in California, as you would expect, they were on the Upper West Side in New York City. Yeah. And if you're looking for a template for an urban cult, I think that this is an excellent one to use fictively. And then you can, to your choice, say, oh, they're actually just trying to drain their mana as opposed to sleep with underage and psychologically vulnerable members of the group and sort of file some of the rough edges off if that's what you'd like to do. It also, of course, would make a great setup for a vampire. So if you're looking at a Knights Black Agents type thing in the 70s or today, and you want to say, hmm, that seems sort of predatory and awful. Oh, I'll bet they're a vampire. There you go. Right. And and if you have a group that wants a really hard horror experience and wants a, and everybody's completely on board with sort of a red band game, this is also this sort of horrible bad guy that makes up the various Esoterror cells. So you yeah. can do something with that as well. Right. But enough of the gamifying, which we are doing up front because we're all going to be too depressed to have fun at the end of this segment. The cult was founded by a fellow named Saul Newton. He was a devoted communist, went and served in Spain during the Civil War, came back, was, you know, never disillusioned by Stalin's peccadilloes. He and his fourth wife, Dr. Jane Pierce, founded a sort of, what do you want to say, a, a psychiatric co-op. Right. They had a, a psychological institute, and he uh, did therapy for people, even though he had no credentials, uh, whatever, to do so. Mm -hmm. And he also managed to completely corrupt and turn inside out the theories of a different psychoanalyst. Yeah, which is where the name the Sullivanian comes from, the psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan, who is safely dead during this entire process. He died in 1949, and he was the guy who said that the sort of standard model of Freudian psychoanalysis, where you are an impartial blank screen, and you just let your patients project their problems onto you, but you never engage with them, try and solve them, try and deal with them as a human being. He said that seems suboptimal. Right. And there's nothing crazy or awful about that. Yeah. He's just saying you should engage with your patients and right. make it a, a dialogue, not a monologue. Yeah. And it's called interventionist therapy. I assume that name is given to it by Freudians who are mad, but the notion of Taking psychoanalysis and getting almost back to bartending is progress of a sort. But once you have authority to interfere with the patient and you are someone like Saul Newton, then patient's going to be interfered with and not in a good way. The Sullivanian Institute sets up a group of therapists with Newton as the chief among them as the final arbiter and authority in the patient's life. So if someone says, should I quit my job? That's making me unhappy. And the Sullivanians would say, yes, and you should move into this rent control department that we own so that we can also control everyone you see. He also uses a lay therapist who also 
have no training. I guess there are some licensed therapists who much later on lose their licenses, which is how we know they were licensed. Right. Not nearly soon enough. (laughs) Right. Because the thing is, this is not a case as sometimes seems to happen where something good and utopian spiraled into horror and insanity. This was horrific, personally totalitarian abuse from day one. From the jump. Yeah. And it was driven by Saul Newton's both ideological and personal uh, hatred of marriage, the nuclear family, motherhood, and monogamy. He believed that in common with many, many other intellectuals who did not, however, set up weird, horrible cults about it, but it's not like he was some sort of strange outlier in the early 1960s. This is very, you see this all over the psychological literature. You see it, you probably you see it all over Twitter now, but he believed that his job as a interventionist therapist was to break all of those bonds. And so you would, for example, say you need to be sleeping with more people, including your therapist, especially your therapist in many cases. You need to, if you have a baby, you have to give it up to be adopted at this boarding school that we also run. Right. And when you want to have a baby, you have to have sex with a bunch of different men. So you have no idea who the father is. Right. Yeah. You have to break that down and destroy it. But they would recruit with, as I mentioned, rent control departments, lots of sex, because if you're a, a man applying for membership in this cult, plenty of people need to have sex with you for their ideology to work. And also, they would write letters to the draft board certifying their patients as psychologically unfit to serve, which was another draw in the 1960s. And so, yeah, they had this whole community of people who go back and forth. And if you were lightly engaged in it, it seemed like a party for a long time, especially I think if you were a man Mm -hmm. and you didn't notice the fact that, guess what? That whole ideology is also just the 101 of cult control, where you separate people from their families and you create a new abusive family with the cult leader on the top. Uh, They never used the term Sullivanian, by the way. That's just a convenient way that other people talk about them because it's like group of people associated with the Sullivan Institute is is too many uh, syllables. Right, yeah. So they they did call it the Sullivan Institute, and they did get into some trouble with Sullivan's own heirs and protégés who said, this seems not what we teach at all, but, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? Nothing. Just, if you read anything about these cases, it's just horrific. And James Agee, the film writer, his daughter got caught up in this cult, and, for example, they would allow her to breastfeed for seven minutes. That was it. Just imagine the level of totalitarian control that is imposed on on someone in this circumstance. By the mid-1970s, they have as many as 600 members of this group, patient members. They live in these Sullivanian-owned apartment buildings. It's all in this area of the Upper West Side. So you can wind up, you know, you're having a party. You're going to the cult building. You're going to your therapy. You're going to the cult therapy center. You're doing this. You're You're always inside this cult world, and the social ease of it acts as the barrier that, you know, moving to the Spawn Ranch or the wilds of Michigan or whatever does with a more conventional cult. Yeah, people were separated from their families, but they weren't separated from life in New York, which is why Jackson Pollock mm-hmm. could be a member of this group for uh, several years, along with Clement Greenberg, who was the defining critic. He was sort of the, uh, we talked about Peggy Guggenheim being the the dealer who made abstract expressionism work. He was the critic who made all of those paintings that lacked a narrative make sense to people in terms of not having a narrative. And he was also a member of this group. Judy Collins, the folk singer, was in the group for 12 years. And only after she left did she realize, oh, wait, I was I was in a cult for 12 years. Yeah. And also the writer Richard Price uh, was involved, I think, pretty lightly in that case. They became more violent over the years uh, after the, the happy years of the 60s. Happy for other people, not for people who are in this cult, went by. They became more of a danger to their neighbors. There was an incident where uh, they were mad at college kids for getting some paint on the wall of a building that they had an apartment in, and a whole bunch of them swarmed in the apartment and savagely beat the college students for having done that. So this was a, a big problem for a lot of years. And also, you know, power corrupts. So Saul Newton began as a terrible human being and became an even worse human being. Just narrative after narrative of just the most god-awful predation and oppression springing from this guy. He, by the way, is on his sixth wife by this point. You know, practice what you preach, I guess, in terms of monogamy. But in the mid-80s, there's enough of these abuses have begun to come to light that people begin to investigate. 
the four of the therapists lose their licenses to practice, whether this was all of the therapists who ever had licenses or not, that certainly creates waves in the psychological scene and people want to assume stop drifting toward the Sullivan Institute for these reasons. And then Newton dies in 1991 and that ends it for good, but it still leaves this horrific trauma across a ton of people's lives. And ironically, of course, for a movement that is designed to destroy family ties, the thing that is keeping it, it sort of awareness alive at all is that these kids that were born in this cult surrounding are tracking it back to figure out who their mother actually was or who their father actually was. And so it's really only being remembered by people who are fundamentally opposing its horrific and anti-human ideology. They also ran an experimental theater troupe. So if, if that wasn't bad enough, Robin... <laughs> Yeah, they also had a black box theater. So what have we learned here? Well, we've learned that the robed cultists who summon elder ones or the Satanists of folk horror, that those cults are much more fun and engaging and enjoyable than (laughs) real life cults, which are this kind of traumatizing horror. And so when you're looking at a relatively new cult for your modern games and you want to, you know, file the serial numbers off something in the news, you need to look hard at what you're doing and have everyone in the group be aware. And if people don't want to descend to these kinds of depths, you know, go back to the fun, cool robed cultists who are more like Hydra. To, than, to mere human sacrifice and uh, yes, brain All they want to do is destroy the world and have tentacled monsters as friends. So that brings us on a quite a somber note to the end of another episode, but we'll make sure that all four segments are a little sunnier when you join us next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Make sure this podcast doesn't run out of options by joining such stalwart backers as... Aryan Poutsma. Volpine. Derek Yates. Taylor Harless. And Jamie Twine. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.